We're doing things a little bit differently here for this episode of the podcast. Uh, we pre-recorded an interview last week with none other than big wave rider from Maui, Billy Kemper. Uh, he is a guy who, first off, is just one of the most talented surfers in the world. Uh, secondly, he is pulling the curtain aside, if you will, to allow people to see up close uh, this harrowing story and experience that he went through uh, based upon an injury that he suffered while surfing off the coast of Morocco last February. This guy went through the ringer in terms of injuries, and his road to recovery was a long and arduous one, and it is now being encapsulated in a six-part docuseries being released by the World Surf League on the WSL website, which premieres Wednesday this week, the 24th. And so uh, that's why we're doing things a little earlier in the week here this week, because we wanted to make sure that we timed it correctly, the Billy Kemper interview going into that series premiere on Wednesday. Yeah, incredible story, right? Billy, Billy charges the biggest waves out there. And, and for this story to kind of unfold as it has during the pandemic, I mean, it's, it's absolutely insane. And, and I, just the trailer for this thing looks epic. <laughs> uh, and, and for him to come back from what he's come back from is, is pretty awe-inspiring. And, and hearing him talk about it uh, in our interview coming up, it, I, think, I think a lot of folks will enjoy it. And um, I'm looking forward to this thing starting on Wednesday. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a litany of injuries from a broken pelvis uh, to a injury that shattered part of his side, left him with torn ligaments in his knee and hip. And it was basically a result of what he describes as the greatest surf session of his life. And we have often commented on just how different a breed those surfers are, right? When they go out there for their quote unquote recreation or when they go out there for their athletic endeavors, it is quite literally risking their lives, putting their lives on the line to achieve what they want to achieve and to aspire for that perfect ride. And it is uh, with great irony that Billy Kemper experienced one of his greatest surf sessions of his life, and it resulted in an injury that almost took his life and certainly almost took his career. And so we get into that with Billy. It's a, a very candid, uh, very open, uh, very personal uh, interview and conversation. So we're excited to unveil that for you here. Episode 59 of Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley. We'll get to that in a moment, but let's pregame it up. Our warm-up topic, a uh, little amuse-bouche to get things rolling, and we're going to start in college basketball because can you believe we're only like three weeks away from the big dance, right? March Madness is almost upon us. So uh, with that in mind, we've seen some pretty big-time matchups on the court here in the last couple of weekends, including this past weekend. You had a top-four matchup, number three Michigan on the road against number four Ohio State. Buckeyes, of course, featuring former Hawaii high schooler Justice Suing Jr., a guy who's averaging double figures for one of the top five teams in the nation. Anyway, Michigan got a big win on the road against the Buckeyes. Gonzaga continues to just steamroll through everybody. They're the consensus number one. You have Baylor. I think everyone's in agreement that they should be number two, uh, that they and Gonzaga are, in fact, the two best teams in the land. Uh, but it got me thinking, who, with all of that said, would you consider the front runner for your National Coach of the Year award in college basketball? Yeah, there are a lot of great candidates, right? This Gonzaga team is just ridiculous. And obviously now they're into West Coast Conference play and and the West Coast Conference, I think, like many years, is pretty decent, but they're just rolling everybody in that thing. And, and I can't wait till they get to the tournament. And they'll probably be undefeated right at that point. 
uh, and they'll be able to take on some of the big boys as they had early in the season. It's not like they shied away from anybody. I mean, they were playing big dudes, as they always do under Mark Few. Uh, Scott Drew right at Baylor there, the two unbeatens. Like, is Jawan Howard the national coach of the year? Jawan Howard back at his alma mater at Michigan. You think of some of the other programs that are sort of flying under the radar. I think like Kelvin Sampson, the career renaissance he's had, the sure. redemption story he's had at Houston. Uh, Greg McDermott that just quietly just keeps winning at Creighton since they've moved from the Missouri Valley over to the Big East and are still just among the top 15 in the country. I think the, the popular pick will be Jawan Howard, right? They've only got one loss. They got a vote in the coaches poll, for a, a, a number one vote, a first place vote in the coaches poll this past week. Didn't get any in the AP poll. Um, but to me, it's Gonzaga. Like, too often we just discard the best team as sort of the coach of the year because they go, oh, well, they've got the most talent. Oh, they've, they've sort of run the story. It's usually like the overachieving team and that coach who wins these type of awards. I'm going with Mark Few. I think that guy is amazing. I think he's he might be the best coach in the country and, and, and the guy that everybody seems to forget about. He's perfect for that program. He loves Spokane, Eastern Washington. To me, it's Mark Few. What they're doing, the way they're just rolling teams and the way that they rolled early in the season and here late and the nice combination they've got of, of some, some, some youngsters and, and, and the veteran group they've got. I, I love Juwan Howard, but I, my, vote's, my vote's with Mark Few. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you there. I think Mark Few deserves it. Uh, I, I do think that we kind of fall into this trap of uh, name brand fatigue. And even though Gonzaga is in what is considered a mid-major conference in the West Coast Conference, there's nothing mid-major about them. They are a major college hoops program, a contender year after year after year under Mark Few. So yeah, he, he deserves that. He, he's deserved that from an almost lifetime achievement uh, type of perspective. Uh, that said, I think if I were to predict what will happen, I think it will be Juwan Howard because I think, like I said, the, the fatigue factor kind of plays a role, right? The established coach and the established program uh, doesn't necessarily always get the credit that it's due because we love the surprise story. And Juwan Howard came in and there were people who were hearkening to the hire of Chris Mullins at St. John's or even, you know, Clyde Drexler and these guys who would go to their alma maters and, you know, what kind of head coaches would they be? And oftentimes those narratives were that they were underachieving head coaches. And Jawan Howard ends up going back to Michigan, right? That was the place where he and the Fab Five made all kinds of history and became one of the most popular teams in the history of college basketball. And there was a question as to whether or not this hire was legit. And as it has turned out, Jawan Howard is running this thing. And I think when you consider what Michigan lost from a year ago, they lost three of their six leading scorers. Uh, that included Xavier Simpson. Uh, they lost their top rebounder and rim protector in John Teske. So they bring in this four-star freshman post player, Hunter Dickinson, uh, two grad transfers in Mike Smith of Columbia and Shondi Brown of Wake Forest. And what do they do? They put together a team that is – you know, I think everyone's in agreement that Gonzaga and Baylor deserve to be one and two in the national rankings, but Michigan is like the undeniable third best team in the country. Interestingly enough, the fourth and fifth best teams might also be Big Ten teams in Illinois and Ohio State, but Michigan under Jawan Howard, I mean, they just have been incredible. And I think it's such a surprise story and it was so unexpected. It's such an unexpected turn. I think that's why he's going to get it. I agree with you. I think Mark Few deserves it because Gonzaga just rolls. Uh, but I think them being in the West Coast Conference would be held against them perhaps in some of these conversations. And Jawan Howard being just such a surprise story, I think that's why he's going to get it. With that said, let's get to our game time. 
And our first game time topic, UH basketball, split in a pair on the road with CSUN. Uh, these were some quirky games. It's just been this way in the Big West Conference, really with every team involved, but particularly strangely enough with the University of Hawaii. A lot of come from behind, late game rallies, a lot of overtime games here in recent weeks, and Hawaii found itself in another such game. Actually, both nights against CSUN, uh, you saw the Matadors rally from double figures down. They nearly won on night one if it wasn't for Bawali Bales hitting a heroic bank shot to basically win it for Hawaii. But then on night two, even though the Rainbows led by as many as 23 in the first half and by 15 with 11 minutes to go in the second half, they would end up squandering that advantage. And it would be CSUN forcing overtime, and it would be CSUN behind a triple-double performance by Darius Brown, 18 points, 16 rebounds, and 10 assists, winning in overtime, almost a reverse, a flipping of the script of what happened at the Stan Sheriff Center for Hawaii against UC Irvine. And so it just boggles the mind here, Jordan. Week after week, I keep thinking to myself, how do you quantify in legitimate basketball terms what this Hawaii team is about and what we see week after week from this Hawaii squad? How would you venture to quantify what this team is? Beats me. (laughs) I really don't know. You know, the CSUN team, it it was two road games, sure. And it's always tough to go win back-to-back games, let alone back-to-back days right on the road against the same opponent. It's it's the way the Big West is set up this year. But you were looking at the schedule saying, okay, these are two winnable games. They were three and five coming into the the game. CSUN was uh, in Big West play. They had gotten shellacked, and I mean shellacked, by UC Santa Barbara in their two meetings last month both double digits, including one by 47 points. Yeah, they lost to UCSB by 47 points. A UCSB team that Hawaii <laughs> the week before nearly beat twice, the top team in the conference, and, and you know, played so well, especially defensively. And I think what we saw for the first time, at least that I can really remember so far here in the season, is Hawaii goes through these scoring droughts, right? We know that. That, that we have seen. That is, that is nothing new. And the crazy part is they're, they're still scoring all these points now. The, the, the offense seems to be – at least in a better place, even though they th- they do go through these stretches. The first time I've seen that during those lulls offensively, the defense maybe suffered a bit. Because what we've seen in previous games is their defense has really kept them in games. They've really allowed them to go through those lulls and still have a chance at the end of these contests. I think what we've seen, at least here in the two CSUN games, was you know they, they not only went through those those dry spells on the offensive end of the floor, but the defense didn't quite match that on the other end. They weren't able to kind of lift themselves up on the defensive side of the court. And look, not having Justin Webster for basically a game and a half of that series, the second half of game one, and then the entirety of game two doesn't help, right? I mean, he's arguably your best player and and guys like Junior Madud and Kajan Jardine continue to step up offensively. But I think seeing that was a little disappointing from this group, but it's so hard to put your finger on it, right? I mean, where how do you how do you know what you're getting night in and night out? You really don't know. Uh, uh, but I will, will say one thing: they've, they've been in a lot of close games, <laughs> so you you know you might get a pretty good contest. Maybe not the most aesthetically pleasing contest, but you might get a pretty competitive contest every time this team steps on the court in Big West play. Yeah, I don't know if that is a confidence builder for Hawaii, say a couple of weeks out from the conference tournament, which is going to be held in Vegas. And we just heard word today officially that they will not allow fans to be in attendance for these conference tourney games. I'm not sure if that's a confidence builder or if that's something that will rattle them in any 
conference tournament format because you're right. I think this is a team that feels like they're never really out of a game because they have proven themselves capable of coming from behind late in ball games. Uh, but I think the flip side of that is because of those offensive lulls that you refer to, which clearly are unfortunately part of the fabric and identity of this year's squad, uh, where they don't necessarily know night to night consistently where their offense is coming from. I think the problem is their opponents are also going to feel like they're never out of a game against Hawaii. And Hawaii may never feel like they have a game controlled or locked up. It's just sort of been that way this season. So uh, you're right. 88-80, the final score on that night two against CSUN. They're scoring a lot of points. Kazan Jardine was pretty big again for Hawaii offensively, uh, but it's the consistency. Where is it going to come from on a night-in, night-out basis? Uh, I think they're going to be competitive. This is a team that has proven that. They've proven that they're willing to fight and they're not going to go down easy. That has become their mantra here as the season has gone on. But how do you quantify what we're seeing? I think it's just part of the nature of the Big West Conference itself as well, top to bottom. Like, you just never know. Makes it kind of exciting, certainly in a tournament format. Makes it pretty unpredictable. But at the same time, uh, it makes it pretty hard for us trying to pontificate on and, and prognosticate on exactly what's going to transpire and how it's going to go down. So, uh, hey, we'll, we'll see what happens here this week. Hawaii playing host to Long Beach State for a pair of ball games, And we'll see which rainbow team shows up at Simplify Arena at Stan Sheriff Center. All right, we switch over to the volleyball court. Yes, we have a little volleyball to discuss. Now, we are recording this episode prior to the second match of the season for the UH Warrior volleyball team. They are the second-ranked team in the country. They are the preseason favorite in the Big West Conference, and they've already begun their Big West Conference season on the road at UC Irvine, eighth-ranked team in the nation. The Big West is no joke, as we know. Some of the top teams in the land are part of that conference, so it's uh, diving into the deep end of the pool. No warm-up exhibitions for Hawaii, and on night one, it seemed as though in a Sunday evening affair, Hawaii had to shake off a little bit of rust. They dropped set one against UC Irvine, and then were able to turn it around. They kicked it into gear. The block started forming. Their serving started getting really, really good. Career-high five aces from Colton Cowell, the Haleakala hammer. You had 13 kills from Colton as well as 13 kills from Rado Parapunov as Hawaii would go on to win in four. So with that said, we don't know exactly how match two is going to go down, but what were your thoughts on the debut here in 2021 for the UH Warrior Volleyball team? Yeah, they looked a little rusty, right? This group looked a, a little rusty. They looked like a team that, that hadn't played in about a calendar year, a competitive match that is, right? Because they usually get a little fall season in or at least some fall exhibition matches in in a normal sort of lead up to a season. And, and we're kind of spoiled by this program. The last couple of you think back two years ago where they went on that incredible run, what it took them like three quarters of the season to <laughs> just lose a set. Right. And then last season, obviously they, losing a match early on to BYU, but just seeing what they can do to, to other opponents that aren't, you know, normally ranked number one in the country. Uh, so see them lose the first set. I wasn't too worried, uh, but it was like, all right, they need to, to shake the rust off a little bit. They still hit over 400 as a team. Colton Cowell had 13 kills. Rado Potapunov had 13 kills. Pat Gassman had nine. They, they spread the wealth around a little bit. Um, and I think the one thing that stood out for a team that, that is still getting their feet under them, the defense wasn't as sharp. They weren't passing the ball maybe on, on serve-receive uh, as, as sharp as we've seen because as offensively prolific as this team has been the last couple of seasons, I think their defense has been something that has stood out, right, that, that has really allowed them to be truly one of the top two programs in the country the last couple of years. 
Uh, and I think that'll come. Like, that'll come as they, they get the season rolling. And these are technically non-conference matches early on, even though they're playing just Big West competition. So, yeah, they, they looked a little rusty. They looked fine. It was just fun to see them out there, right? This is this is arguably the best show in, in town, right? And you, you've said that on the, on the television broadcast. Like, as much as we love the football team, as much as folks love the, you know, the baseball, the softball, the women's volleyball teams and, and, and basketball, like the men's volleyball team has been the ticket. Like that's been the ticket and not necessarily that people can attend, but it was, it was nice to see that program out on the floor again. Charlie Wade encapsulated it so well after the match. He, he just sort of tossed around Oprah Winfrey style, a bunch of thank yous, right? Much appreciation to donors, uh, people who were able to provide tangibly support for this program to be able to pay for some of the scholarships for the players that were returning that were gifted that extra year of eligibility. Uh, and then that said, you know, Hawaii goes out and yeah, they dropped set one. There seems to be no worry uh, in any way. Charlie Wade's never been shy to go to his bench uh, because of the depth. He says, hey, look, depth isn't depth unless you use it. And you saw some substitutions throughout that match uh, that positively impacted Hawaii, turning things around, kind of getting it back on track. And then once they got it on track, you know, dare I say, it wasn't really even that competitive, at least in really long stretches of the last three sets. So we'll see what happens here on night two. Again, they're about to take the floor here as we're recording this. Uh, but it was vintage Hawaii and uh, kind of leads you to believe that uh, they're going to be the juggernaut that they have been the last two seasons. And that's exciting, certainly. It's exciting to, to see men's volleyball, as you mentioned, which has uh, become uh, itself here in the last few years, one of the flagships for the University of Hawaii. Exciting to see them back out there. Speaking of University of Hawaii athletics, we move over to football. We're going a little UH heavy here uh, because there's a lot of headlines involving University of Hawaii sports, including the loss of University of Hawaii offensive coordinator G.J. Kinney. He's heading east, way east. Uh, the offensive coordinator for the Warriors took the quarterbacks and co-offensive coordinator role at UCF, Central Florida, under Gus Malzahn, who just took over that program after Josh Heupel left to Tennessee. Kenny and Malzahn coached on the same staff, ironically enough, under Todd Graham when they were all at Tulsa. And so they were connected. Gus Malzahn posted on Twitter how excited he was to bring Kenny into the fold. What that also means, though, as far as the ramifications, is Chevin Cordero, quarterback for the University of Hawaii next season will be playing for his third offensive coordinator. What's the impact you think of this transaction here with a departing offensive coordinator at Hawaii? Yeah, a little inside baseball. Cool to pull the curtain back. I'm even wearing like a green polo since we're going so UH heavy here <laughs> on the podcast. But the, the, to, to, to address what you were talking about, right, for, for a quarterback and an offense in, in total, right, not just Shevin, but uh, an offense going on their third offensive coordinator in three years. That's, that's tough, right? We've seen guys at all different levels and the impact that that can have, right? You think the Marcus Mariota, right? Just a, a local example that I think people are familiar with in, in his first, what, five years, four years or whatever it was that he, that he spent with the Tennessee Titans, right? He had like a new offensive coordinator basically every year. There was a time there where he had more offensive coordinators than seasons because of the firing <laughs> of the, of, of um, you know, the, the initial coach that he had there. Uh, I can't even remember his name. That's how long it was ago before they, they put Malarkey in charge uh, as the uh, interim coach there. It, it's difficult, right? And and the, the saving grace could be if they promote somebody from within the staff, right? If it's somebody on staff, they're running the same system, you at least eliminate that learning curve. 
of having to learn a whole new playbook, a whole new set of terminology and things like that, that could be a big difference, right? That That's somebody calling plays, that rhythm, that's always going to take a little bit of time. But if it is somebody that is familiar with the system that Todd Graham wants to run, you at least, you know, sharpen the, the learning curve a little bit. You can speed that process up. Now, the fact of the matter is they've also lost another coach on that offensive staff, right? If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, uh, from, from for the University of Hawaii, uh, the receivers coach who was, who was left to take a job at Pitt. And so it's nice to have assistance desired by bigger programs, right? There, there's nothing wrong with that. That means you're doing something right. If, if programs, successful programs at higher levels are, are looking to poach from your staff, but you got to be ready. You got to be ready to, to sort of promote from within or find some other guys that can come in and and have some success. It was an offense that was choppy last year that was really up and down. Um, and I'm really curious to see what the next step in the progression is and, and who is going to be the person uh, that they're going to kind of hand the reins to with an offense that, that brings back Chevin Cordero and a whole lot of other really talented weapons on offense. So yeah, it's, a, it's a, an offense that's got a lot of potential, but, you know, a lot of question marks now going into the offseason. Yeah, a little housekeeping. Uh, Ken Wisenhunt, the head coach uh, name that I think you were trying to think of. Uh, and also you mentioned the receivers coach who is departing to Pitt. That's Brennan Marion, a guy who actually played for Todd Graham. This coaching tree, if you will, moving on to different places and, and uh, potentially greener pastures for them trying to advance their respective careers. So, yeah, it's, it's more power to them. You're right. I think that's a positive indication. You can certainly spin it uh, to represent that. For the program, if your program's doing well, then your coaches will be in high demand. One of the benefits of whoever comes in to take over the offensive coordinator position is you have Calvin Turner, right? A guy who just was an unbelievable force in this offense last year, already declaring that he's coming back next season. You have a returning starter who's going to have multiple years as a starting quarterback under his belt uh, and those experience points uh, in Chevin Cordero. So I, I think you, you have offensive pieces with some level of veteranship uh, so I'm not too worried necessarily about the offensive side of the ball because uh, you don't often inherit that level of personnel. You don't often inherit that level of talent from a previous regime. All right, speaking of quarterbacks, let's talk a little pro football here before we get to our Billy Kemper interview. Uh, Carson Wentz is changing teams. He is headed to the Indianapolis Colts in a trade in exchange for two draft picks. Carson Wentz appeared to want out of Philly. Philly appeared to be over Carson Wentz. They have Jalen Hurts, who they turned to late last season, even though they haven't necessarily given him the public vote of confidence. But this trade reunites Carson Wentz with Frank Reich, who was his offensive coordinator in 2016 and 2017 in Philadelphia, which were, without a doubt, objectively speaking, the best seasons that Carson Wentz had as a professional quarterback in 2017. That was basically a year where he was playing like an MVP before going down with injury. So what do you think about this trade, the winners and losers of this trade, and, and seeing Carson Wentz suiting up as an Indianapolis Colt? Yeah, it's just amazing to think that – this franchise that that seemingly had their franchise quarterback for for what a decade and a half going into the future a guy that was playing MVP caliber football right the year that they go on and win the Super Bowl that has had some injury issues no doubt about that but within the span of what four years they fired the coach that won the Super Bowl they, they're gutting the roster and they're trading away this franchise quarterback that they gave this massive contract to and they get a ton in return, right? I mean, they, they, get some, they get some draft picks. They get some capital there. It's incentive-based on the fact that he has to play 75% of the snaps for the Colts to 
to act or elevate it from a two to a one in terms of the draft picks. And so for, for the Eagles to find themselves in this situation, it's kind of like, all right, just tear it all down, right? They're releasing today guys who are a big part of that um, run to the Super Bowl, like an Alshon Jeffrey, uh, a guy in Deshaun Jackson, who they thought was going to come back in and help, you know, reinvigorate Carson Wentz. And so it's just crazy to think that they got to that point where, where they were, you know, the class of the league with all the depth that they had, with all of the, the wealth of talent that they had, particularly on both sides of the football. Uh, so just to think of it from that standpoint is, is incredible. Uh, and so, you know, the fresh start, right? The Eagles get to kind of wash their hands of everything, right? Doug Peterson's gone. Carson Wentz is gone. Is Jalen Hurts your guy? I don't think it is. I don't know if they're really going to commit to him. They got an opportunity maybe to go make something happen in the draft going forward. Uh, so we'll see there. Um, it is a colossal failure to make it all work, but at least at this point, they just hit the, the, the eject button, right, and, and move on and start fresh. And so for the Colts and Carson Wentz, Wentz really seemed like a guy who, you know, they, they, they drafted Hurts and, and his psyche kind of got shot, right? And his confidence went in the tank. And he's a guy that even two years ago, I thought played pretty well, dragging that team to the playoffs in the postseason. Um, even though his play maybe was not quite what it was as an MVP, he really carried that team that didn't have a 500-yard receiver on it uh, two seasons ago. So you don't have to look that far back to see the value of this guy. Um, and, the, you know, the counter argument is, hey, all they did was go draft another quarterback and, and all of a sudden his confidence went shot, right? And, and is that what you want from an NFL franchise quarterback is a guy with that fickle of a, of a confidence and, and that fickle of a psyche. And, and so that'll be a big question mark. But I think the fact that he's got a team that believes in him once again, working with a guy that obviously brought out the best in him that, that you've already pointed out. I, I'm kind of bullish on this for the Colts. I, I really am. And, and the health is a, a wild card that, that nobody really can predict at this point. But I'm kind of bullish on the fact that I think he's still got a lot left. I think Frank Reich is a guy to unlock that. I don't know if I'm quite Dan Orlovsky saying that he needs to be considered an MVP <laughs> candidate right now. Uh, but with the talent they got on that roster, the offensively and defensively, some of the young receivers that they've got, and, and obviously the support they got from you know guys like DeForest Buckner on the defensive side of the football, you saw what they did with – Philip Rivers last year, who had a really good year, and I thought one of his best years in a while in, in it being his last year. I think Wentz can, I think Wentz can really find a, a bit of a restart here, and I, I'm, I'm pretty high on this for the, for the Colts. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting, this deal, right? The Eagles are going to take a $33.8 million dead cap hit. That's the largest dead cap hit that any team has ever taken for a player, while the Colts are basically going to assume the balance of Wentz's $128 million extension, including the $10 million guaranteed roster bonus, which he is due next month. So this is a big money transaction, and this proves that the Eagles – really want it out of that deal and it proves that the Colts really want a quarterback and if the baseline is Phillip Rivers last year right if the baseline is hey look we want to invest in a quarterback that can be at least what Phillip Rivers was last season I think Carson Wentz is a viable option his confidence got shook and he was not clearly the same quarterback that he once was uh, but I do think that a fresh start a change in environment and going to a team that has pieces around him right you have one of the best young talents at running back in Jonathan Taylor you have a receiving core that still has a veteran in T.Y. Hilton you have Michael Pittman who had a breakout season uh, I think if Philip Rivers can have the kind of year that he had with an arm that seems pretty shot 
<laughs> and flimsy at times throughout the year. If he could still lead the Colts into the playoffs and into that certain level of division contendership, then I certainly think Carson Wentz has the tools to do it. Can Frank Reich and company extract that once again and bring that out? That remains to be seen. But I do like the trade for the Colts because of the familiarity if it doesn't work out, it comes with a huge price tag. So it is a big risk. Uh, but I think the reward, if you get anything close to what Carson Wentz was, uh, I think that turns the Colts into a force to be reckoned with. All right, time now for our Domino's Hawaii main topping, and it's our interview with Billy Kemper, the Maui Big Wave rider, multiple-time winner of the Peahi Challenge, a guy who suffered a devastating injury while surfing off the coast of Morocco last February. His tale of recovery is harrowing. It is now being encapsulated in a six-part documentary, which we will get into with Billy himself. We pre-recorded this interview last week, so it is... Our pleasure, without any further ado, uh, our chat with Billy Kemper. Hey, what's up, Billy? How you doing, man? It's uh, great to get an opportunity to chat with you. Uh, obviously, we've been seeing you doing your thing in the lineup at uh, Peahi, so obviously you're feeling all right. How are you feeling, though? Are you, are you back, to, back to normal in your own eyes? You know, um, it seems like that's the most frequently asked question <laughs> over the last few, last few months, and um you know, I don't know if I've ever felt normal in my life, but I feel I feel good. I feel very blessed to be where I'm at. Um, uh, the support that I have right now in the community that I'm surrounded in, it's it's so unique. I've never been in such a good place in my life, and I'm just very grateful for everyone who's helped me and just gotten me to where I'm at right now. Yeah, and this is interesting because, uh, you know, we're being granted an opportunity here to, to talk with you as, as part of a way to, to promote this upcoming six-part docu-series uh, being rolled out by the World Surf League. And it's just simply named Billy. And it takes us through the journey of what was a very harrowing 2020 for you. Obviously, the entire world went through some levels of adversity here because of COVID. But uh, obviously, you went through something that was beyond uh, because of an injury suffered when you were surfing off of the coast of Morocco in February. Um, if we can start, obviously, this, this, this film and, and this documentary is going to lay all of this stuff out, but kind of where we can start with how this project came about and, and what made you want to do it? Um, you, know, you know what's crazy is, let's say, today's February 18th. So about a, like, I think it was February 9th last year, um, I was sitting here at my house on the North Shore and the Vulcan Pipe Pro had just ended. And I'm, you know, I looked at the, the Pacific Ocean kind of just shut down and the, uh, the Atlantic Ocean just started going crazy with swell. And there's a, there's a few places that I've been, I've been looking at going over the last 10 years and I just haven't, the timing of everything never lined up. And a good friend of mine, Jerome from Morocco reached out to me and he's like, Hey, there's like the swell of a decade coming here to Northern Africa. And I, you know, pulled the trigger on going with uh, Koa Smith and Luke Davis. And, you know, we hit up WSL about doing a strike mission trip that had this series called at large. And they're like, heck yeah. Like we'd love to be the supporters of it and, um, you know, help you guys get down there. So we teamed up with WCL, went down to Morocco and scored some of the best waves of our lives. Um, you know, like I've said that, that phrase so many times on surf trips, but truly like, you know, even the way this trip ended, it, it, 
you know, I, I was almost ended the way it ended. Um, I went through a very traumatic injury. Um, I mean, all kinds of stuff from broken pelvis to a completely re, uh, reconstructed knee, um, lung damage, femur and quad muscle damage. And, um, you know, I was, I was brought back to the United States emergency, um, like an emergency, emergency evacuation plane. And, um, you know, over the last, you know, six months of summer, I um, was just blessed in, in such a like humbled, unique surrounding of um, just intelligent people in California who really helped me heal on a level that I don't think I could have done without their support and knowledge. Um, not saying that Hawaii doesn't have good doctors or, or good physical therapists. I have a great physical therapist bar at Physio in Honolulu. Um, it was just the technology that California had um, as far as for a sports performance recovery. And, you know, I, I turned, my, turned it around pretty quick and came back to doing what, um, doing what I truly dreamed of doing. And that was just being me and surfing big waves this winter. So I, I did it all, you know, under probably like eight, nine months and I feel great. And, um, yeah, that's kind of the, the story of the film, the six, it's a six piece, um, documentary series. First one will air next Wednesday, and then after that, it'll follow every Sunday. So it's uh, it's kind of the whole thing, you know. It it goes to Morocco with us, um, and then goes into this injury, the road to recovery, the people who are involved. Uh, I you know so grateful. Guys like Laird Hamilton, Gabby Reese, um, professional rugby players, you know Tony Hawk, all kinds of really cool people who are involved and. And then also the circle around me. And, um, you know, it, it ended up turning into like, oh, we're going to make a story about Billy. So that's kind of how it started. Yeah, Billy, it's it's incredible. Uh, I, I was wondering if you could kind of just take us to, you know, the, the, the origin of this, I guess, in, in that trip to Morocco, right? And you guys are out in strike force or what, what are you guys are calling this, uh, you know, and, and you get out there. What, what is it about that wave? What is it about that area that sort of, sucked you in and, and convinced you to go and, and take that trip halfway across the world to, to go ahead and, and spend some time out there? Um, so basically, you know, I compete and I love competing, but there's also these trips that our sponsors see such high value in, in it. We call them strike missions. It's basically we study the, the earth and all the coastlines to where we'll hold the best, heaviest waves around the world. And we watch swell directions with con conditions and everything. And when all stars align, we'll pull the trigger, you know, 48 hours pre-swell. Pre and we have, you know, 48 hours to get across the world and be ready to surf. You know, it might be the biggest day ever. It might be the most perfect, you know, overhead day ever. But, like, we're always prepared for anything. And that's kind of what we do is these last-minute trips, and we get amazing waves because we don't plan early. We watch the storms form. And our sponsors have really taken in the value of, of all the content we create from going down there and the media that we can provide to give back to them with new product, with everything. And, and it's a story, you know. It's not just like we're going to take you on a photo trip or, like, to go do a photo shoot. You guys are going to, you know, make a team and this team's not only there to surf the waves, they're there to save each other's lives. You know, we, we practice everything, the good and bad and fly down there 
And, you know, that's kind of how the Morocco thing happened, a place we'd never been, incredible waves. Um, was it the biggest waves ever? No. Were the smallest? No. Just really perfect waves. Um, definitely much overhead. And, uh, yeah, just stuff that stuff that you'll fly 50 hours away and risk your life for. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, a lot of the reports, uh, you know, quote, a, a mutant slab, kind of what, what took you out there on that, you know, and, I'm a novice. It's not like I don't, you know, too many details about the sport and one that I can barely stand up on a board. But uh, can you can you explain to us and the listeners kind of what that means and, and what that moment uh, kind of confluence came together? Yeah, um, you know, mutant slab is a real heavy, thick wave, um, by no means like a user friendly wave, uh, really hollow. And just, you know, the barrel is what we all chase. That's what we love doing. And um yeah, we're at the end of the session. I just fell on the wrong wave, the wrong place. And, um, I, yeah, the falling took me straight into a, a big boulder, and that rock just blew up the right side of my body. And that's kind of it's all history from there. What do you remember about that moment? Uh, you had mentioned that over the course of this process, you don't recall a lot necessarily. Has any of that come back to you? Yeah, you know, I mean – I knocked out when it happened um, from the impact and it uh, it's weird. It was the most, you know, post injury. I'd never, never dealt with pain like this in my life, but in the moment of when it happened, it was probably one of the most like peaceful things I've ever went through. Just, um, I don't know, really, really just at ease and a lot of emotions just letting go. And, you know, then once, the adrenaline wears off and you know you wake up from being knocked out and your body starts to move you realize that you know <laughs> your body's hanging on by a thread that's when pain starts to kick in i mean that's sort of the the deal you make right this this risk reward nature of what you do and and what you have excelled at in your life and and it is it is a risky endeavor uh and so i guess I'm wondering, you know, you sort of referred to it there. How does it compute and process in your mind, knowing that that kind of thing that happened to you in Morocco is every single time you head out there, a possibility? Yeah, you know, those those questions submerged real quick after this this um, whole injury. And that's what the, the documentary is about. You know, it's um, it's when what you love takes you away from who you love you know it's like are you willing you know I love this sport so much and is it like am I willing to continue doing it if it if it's gonna put me at risk of taking me away from my family like you know there's it's 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 hard but you know I've found myself and who I am to be somebody right in the middle I just have to find the right balance and you know, I can't live without my family and I definitely can't live without surfing. So just um, trying to be present at both and um, just get a understanding of, of what I'm after in the ocean. Yeah. How long did it take to, to kind of get to that comfort level again where, where you felt good about sort of what you were doing? And obviously the, the road to recovery is a, is a long and arduous path. But, you know, you were back out there fairly quickly. I think, you know, amazing people 
even us as we follow your journey, but, but how long did it take to, to kind of feel comfortable out there? You mentioned earlier, right? You, you never really felt normal per se, but just, just to feel comfortable back doing what you're doing, pursuing what you love, as you mentioned, and, and just feeling comfortable physically out there in the water. I, I still don't feel comfortable. <laughs> no. Um, you know, I served Jaws on December 12th and that, um, poof, that, that was the scariest day of surfing in my life. I don't know. That was a first, that was like test one of like, how, how is this hip going to move? How's the knee going to work? And you know what? Um, obviously there's so much fear involved, but like the harder, the more work you put in, the less questioning you have upstairs, you know, your mind gets strengthened by the work that your body is endured through. And you know what you sat all the sacrifices made, like when you when you get an understanding of how hard you work and the the miles that you put in it, um, it just strengthens your mindset of of just knowing, you know, when you're okay, I'm ready to surf, I feel good. Like, you know, what you, you obviously get your clearance from your doctors and your physical therapists and your trainers and everything. But internally too, your mind knows how much work you've done. And uh, this summer I, I put in more work than I've ever done in my entire life. It was, um, I feel great. And I, it's all because of the people who, who motivated me and inspired me to, to be on this path that I'm on right now. I'm just, uh, I'm just in a really good place. And it's all, you know, because my mind is really strong right now. And I, I just am enjoying it now. And uh, blessed to be back in the ocean, just surfing and performing exactly how I wanted to. Yeah, I'm kind of curious too, Billy, you know, as the, the documentary comes out next week, Wednesday, the 24th of February for, for our listeners, um, has sharing your story via the documentary, having the film crew around with you been therapeutic at all as you sort of share this, this journey that you've been on over the last, you know, 12 months now? Yeah, um, it, You know, it's rough at times, but then, you know, to just, you know, there's been a handful of kids who've already reached out and, um, you know, the rewards of giving back are much higher than the rewards of, of receiving. Um, and that's something that I've found in the recent years and, you know, with having my kids and whatnot is like being able to give back in some sort of way. What is just such a, you know, undescribable feeling of, of when it does affect people. And that was my goal with this is, um, if I can inspire or motivate some kids, you know, who may get injured at an early age or in the middle of their career, it's to give them, you know, a good, like clear mindset and motivation that, um, they're not alone. Cause I definitely felt alone, you know, when you're that, injured in the middle of you know kind of how you feel like last winter I felt like it was the best surfing I had done in my 29 years of being alive and I was just like to come to a complete stop it really makes you question you know what what's going to happen on the back end of this where am I gonna where am I gonna end up and that's um that's why I wanted to kind of document this and put it out there was to give kids and you know just people whether you're a surfer a basketball player, a skater, snowboarder, anything. You could be a kid who is going to college. Like, I just hope that in some way, shape, or form that uh, I can help inspire and motivate you. 
Yeah, it's interesting. One of the parts of the trailer, which was fantastic, by the way, uh, that stood out was when you referenced your family and just how much strength you extracted from the support of your family. I mean, you are a beloved surfer the world around, but it is that core support system, right? That your family that really gives you that motivation to do what you did in this unheard of recovery this past year. Um, How supportive from Square One were they? And have they ever shared any level of hesitancy about you getting back out there and and continuing to do what you love? Yeah, I'm I'm not me without my family. Uh, Those wins and those waves, all that stuff is, that's, that's nothing. My family is everything, you know, to me, they're the, my kids are the big, biggest victories ever. They'll, they'll nothing, no trophy will ever outshadow anyone in my family. And um, I think they're the reason why, you know, the successes came in the last five years of my life. My son was born five years ago as the first year I won the first Jaws event. And, um, you know, there's a, a lot of good things that have came from there. And it's also just manning up and, and being a present father. Um, that's at the end of the day, that's, you know, it's, it's no joke. But, you know, my family, from the very beginning, my older brother, Eric, was, you know, he's the reason why I wanted to surf. He's my hero. And when I lost him, it just um, created footsteps for me to follow. And then at some point, you know, you got to, grow grow up and um and be who you want to be and that's what happened you know my brother gave me this perfect rollout when he left and all these people to look out for me and help me grow up and <clears throat> watch over me and you know when you come a teenager and you want to make a name for yourself surfing for me it wasn't easy it was hard it was a dog fight and uh it definitely over the last five years of my life have definitely blossomed with my, my family and my children being involved. So uh, my, my whole life is motivated and inspired by my family. That's, that's all there is to it. And another thing, you know, it's like being from Hawaii, just because Hmm. you're like, you know, you don't have to be blood to be family. Like I've, I've lost most of my my blood family and, um, my friends and my surroundings are those are stronger than any anything and that's why i have the biggest family around everyone ev- anyone and everyone who surrounds himself around me is is my family and uh that's like we you know we we like to have big gatherings and enjoy enjoy time together and you know when when one makes it we all make it uh, so i imagine that your a level of appreciation when you're now out in the water is a little bit different. Maybe your perspective has, has been somewhat altered. Um, and then you went through, from what I understand, another incredible experience just this past weekend where you were at Pipeline and you had to actually rescue one of your guys, Mikey Shaughnessy. Um, did that bring back memories? Like, what, what was that like? Yeah, this, this last week was that was emotional. Um, his Valentine's day pipeline was as good as it gets 10, 12 foot. And I mean, the day was just incredible altogether. Everyone was getting amazing waves and, you know, mother nature just, you know, did her thing. And Mikey had a really bad fall, hit his head, knocked himself out cold, took a handful of waves, you know, being underwater. And I, um, he was, first got to by a couple kids, Leo Fervanti, um, 
I forget the other two kids, a couple kids got to him and they're just getting exploded in some really heavy impact zone. And as they got pushed in, I was able to come assist them and kind of take over from there as far as helping getting him onto the jet ski with the uh, North Shore lifeguards. Dave also was there to help me pull Mikey on and we took him straight up the sand and the lifeguards did their wonders and brought him back to life because uh, at the point of where we got to him, he, um, he was gone. So it was, it was very, very emotional for myself. Um, I haven't been around something or like some serious pain. Like, you know, my wife, (laughs) my wife fractured her ankle last week snowboarding, but uh, aside from that, like, you know, like I haven't been around a life-threatening situation since my injury and it did, you know, there are some moments where I made eye contact with, with Mikey and I seen fear that I seen, you know, like I never knew what fear was until my injury. There's like, you know, it's different, a whole different category. And I seen that Mikey, Mikey was there as well. And, um, it brought up a lot of emotions, I didn't surf that day after that. I I was uh I was just, you know, kind of numb. My soul was definitely rattled for sure. I wasn't that strong at that point and I knew it was time to just take a step back and let the ocean, you know, do its thing and pay my respect to my brother Mikey and just give him, you know, all of all of the positive healing and recovery uh that's needed because we're just so blessed to have him back, you know, here with us. Not his time, way too early for him. Yeah, very well said. Um, most of the surfers that I've spoken with, they talk about being in the present, right? That's part of what allows them to do what they do. Do you now think at all about the future and 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 what is in store for you as we move forward? Uh, yeah, for sure. You know, um, I always look forward. I always look at the future. I always look at, you know, what can I do better? Um, not for everyone, but just honestly, truly for myself. I just, I love, um, you know, I love surfing heavy waves and, and scoring perfect waves around the world with my friends. That's like, that's what I love doing and documenting it. His, um, has been such a blessing to be able to share it with people like yourself and my kids and their friends and kids who don't get to see the ocean. So that's been huge for me. And I'm really looking forward to continue, continue doing that this summer. It's going to be a little difficult under the COVID regulations, but I think there's a few destinations that we can sneak off to and um, (laughs) score some good waves. (laughs) Well, this docu-series is going to be a great opportunity for people to understand you and where you come from and and that support system that we spoke about. And so we're really looking forward to it. Uh, Your story is an amazing one. Um, You have been uh, an amazing uh, example for so many. And so we wish you the best. Uh, We're looking forward to watching this thing. And uh, we wish you many more monster waves here uh, with high scores going forward, my man. Right on, you guys. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And yeah, your guys' support is everything. So much love. And uh, yeah, everyone, please, please be sure to check out my documentary series, Billy. That'll be on worldsurfleague.com starting next Wednesday and followed every Sunday after that. Right on. Have a good one, bro. Thanks, Billy. Right on, you guys. Have a good one. 
All right, big thanks to Billy Kemper once again. Yeah, that was something we were trying to do for a while. Remember, even when we were just doing the radio show, we were always trying to line up Billy Kemper. You know, he's, he's I imagine that the press junket stuff isn't necessarily the, the thing that really revs his engine, uh, but he was kind enough to sit with us for almost a half hour, and so it was a great pleasure to talk to him finally. Yeah, that's the, the one difficulty, right, with guys who will just on 48 hours notice, like, fly halfway across the world. Uh, to go chase some waves. It's kind of hard to lock down an interview time. <laughs> it, just, it, it takes a little bit. It, it, no, we were, we were really happy to, to talk to Billy. And, and obviously, it's, it's quite the inspiring story and, and really, really cool stuff to kind of get his perspective on, on his journey and just kind of life, right? Uh, a pretty deep thinking dude. And I uh, can't wait for that documentary to air in a couple of days. Yeah, we'll be checking that out for sure. All right, time now for our post game. Best and Worst, brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii Maui's premier full-service refuse company, offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll-off containers for commercial construction and residential use. Family-owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit wasteprohawaii.com for services information. All right, I'm going to start with my best. Um, I'm going with Max Homa, the PGA golfer, getting his second career victory on the PGA Tour, winning the Genesis Open this past weekend at Riviera in Los Angeles. It is a tournament that is hosted by Tiger Woods. And the reason I'm so excited for Max Homa is because he's one of my favorite golfers, simply because he has become a bit of a phenomenon on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, for roasting other wannabe golfers, right? The weekend warriors like myself, they'll actually send Max Homa clips of their own swing and ask him to critique it. And what has transpired is he just lights them up. Like he just lays into them. He makes jokes about how they're dressed, makes jokes about how goofy their swings are. And it's become this really fun, interactive phenomenon on Twitter and Instagram, and uh, I love Max Homa for that. I think he has a great sense of humor, and so I was happy to see him win, and it meant a lot to him. He's an L.A. guy. Receiving the trophy from the hands of Tiger Woods was also something that I think uh, really meant a lot to him. He says that this, this win and winning at that golf course means as much to him as any victory at any tournament would mean, so uh, it was a cool story, Max Homa. Yeah, it really is, and he's a guy that uh, now he can say, right, it, it not just the, the zingers on social media, that uh, something that I think golf fans knew. The dude can play, right? And, and seeing him go ahead and finish that thing and, and getting the trophy from Tiger, which is always kind of cool. Tiger maybe uh, not quite optimistic on being ready for the Masters. I was watching a little bit of the CBS broadcast, and then Jim Nance was interviewing him, and it, it, didn't, sound, it didn't sound overly – optimistic that his back was going to be ready but uh it was it was max Homa's weekend for sure and uh props to him on the big win all right what's your best jordan yeah my best uh we're gonna go to uh, baseballism the clothing and apparel brand uh we had the founder on the podcast if you haven't heard that episode go back through the archives travis chalk hawaii guy uh so of course we had to get him on they came out with a new collaboration they've got all kinds of stuff by the way but their latest collaboration which dropped this past weekend is with ken griffey jr that's right the kid if you got to go check this out. If you, ha- if you don't follow them on Instagram or any of the social media, uh, some of the, the designs they've come up with and, uh, you know, some, like the, the iconic swing where he's sort of watching the ball fly and the bat's kind of down. It's like a pixelated in like an old backyard baseball video game sort of format. There's like, you know, a young Ken Griffey watching an a antenna TV of, of old Ken Griffey sh- swinging the bat and it, it, it all kind of like a silhouette of him with the chain with the 2-4 
Uh, they got a shirt on the back that says like your favorite player's favorite player, uh, which is so true, right? The, the old saying, it's like, Griffey, I, I think for, for folks too, right, that sort of uh, a lot of their baseball formation as a fan, if you grew up in the 90s, like he's your guy. Like the kid, junior, he's your guy. And, and I think that's sort of, you know, Travis and, and the, the, the designers and creators angle there at baseballism. A lot of those guys are of that generation. Uh, and so this, this is the coolest. So you guys got to check it out. Uh, so a little, uh, little free, free advertising there for, for Travis and the folks at uh, baseballism. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, maybe we uh, can uh, manipulate this relationship to where we can do that advertising, and it's not for free. Uh, if <laughs> Travis is listening somewhere, no, um, you should listen to that episode if you haven't yet, because uh, he talks about the origin of baseballism as a brand, uh, and it's a really cool story. They're taking over the world, man. And yeah, having Ken Griffey Jr. add credibility to an already credible brand like that, man, that's pretty amazing. All right, let's flip over to the worst. Uh, my worst. That viral video, I think most everybody has seen it, of that kid at a camp hosted by Cam Newton, a football camp hosted by Cam Newton, and the kid basically talking trash to Cam Newton in what was a very sort of disrespectful display. Uh, the kid has since publicly apologized for good reason. Uh, hey, look, if you love or hate Cam Newton and the way he dresses, some of the Superman antics, uh, I happen to love Cam Newton. I think he's gotten a raw deal over his career. He takes more of a beating than any other quarterback and rarely ever benefits from any of the penalties called in such situations. Uh, and maybe he isn't the quarterback that he once was. But this is a guy who won a national championship, number one overall pick, an MVP in the NFL. Uh, he has made a butt ton of money over the course of his career. There is nothing you can say, especially if you are an aspiring football player, if you're just a teenager, there's nothing you can say to criticize Cam Newton. You should be thanking your lucky stars that he is even close to you enough where you could actually learn something from him and pick his brain. Cam Newton's been there, done that. I hate to sound old, but I'm going to be the old man here. The kids today, man. Youth is wasted on the young. Show your elders some respect. Yeah, come on, man. Now we're going to sound like the old guys and whatnot, but that's okay. That's okay. You know, you think back to some of those old – like when Michael used to put on some Cat Michael Jordan and you'd have some of the kids kind of – kind of messing with him a little bit but it was it was more playful right it was a little more tongue-in-cheek and and he'd clown him a little bit but like this kid was being straight up disrespectful like <laughs> you can't do that to the former MVP of the league this guy like single-handedly carried the the Panthers to the Super Bowl and it's, come on Cam Newton I used to hate Cam Newton like Auburn Cam Newton when I was a younger you know maybe a little more immature I wasn't a big fan but I love Cam like I, I think the guy is terrific he has fun. He is joyful. He's good for the game. But you can't, you can't have these young bucks coming in here and showing that kind of disrespect. I hope he got clowned by his friends afterwards because that's terrible. That was terrible, man. Yeah. Like he's, calling him a, he's calling him a free agent and, you know, like teasing him about being a free agent. And it's like, dude, you got you to gotta check yourself, my friend. Because Cam Newton, if you were to build a quarterback in a laboratory, if you were to, to build a granite statue, right? A forge a granite statue of the perfect Adonis looking quarterback. It is Cam Newton, man. It is his physique. It is his smile. It is his ability, everything about him. He was, he has been and was the most physical force we've ever seen at that quarterback position. He deserves some respect. All right. Uh, what's your worst? Yeah, my worst. Uh, we're going to circle back to Carson Wentz here. So he wore number 11 in his days in North Dakota <laughs> state. He wore it through his first five years in the league, all with Philadelphia, obviously. Uh, but Michael Pittman Jr., the Colts' <laughs> standout young wide receiver out of USC, he wears number 11. 
And usually when those things work, right, especially if you're a big time name, if you're maybe a veteran, you're maybe a quarterback, you're making a lot of money. Uh, you come in, you, you, you give a little money to the young buck or something like that to give them your number and everybody's cool with it. Buy them a call. I don't know. All these transactions go down, but usually there's some compensation involved. Uh, Michael Pittman says no, where he's not giving it up. Uh, and Carson Wentz is going to have to find a new number. And so if you're Carson Wentz, right, it's like, damn, man, I, my old team didn't want me. Now I got to come in here. I got to change my number. But uh, according to some of the reports, Pittman was saying that, that Wentz asked him, called him straight up, said if it was available, and, and he told him no, and he was really cool about it. And he said, I was thinking about changing the number. Anyway, so to me, I think the way you turn this around, right, you, you make it not the worst. You just It's a fresh start for Wentz. Find a new number. Make it your own, right? Number 11's gone and done with. That's, that's in Philadelphia. Go ahead and create a new, new chapter for yourself there, C-Dub. All right, that's our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii Maui, owned Maui, operated for Maui's people. Uh, thanks once again to Billy Kemper for joining us. That was a big thrill for us. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helly, or at TalkSports808. We will do it again next week, Jordan. Have a good one, my man. Looking forward to it. <laughs>